Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. Today, we continue our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. The Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon on Wednesdays in the Ina Dillard Russell Library on the campus of Georgia College in downtown Milledgeville. These events are free and open to the public, so if this discussion sparks your interest, please consider joining the conversation again at noon on Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. On today's edition of the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections, my guest, Georgia College Director of Leadership Programs, Harold Mock, asks the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? Harold Mock, welcome back to the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections. Thank you, Daniel. I'm glad to be with you. Well, when we ask a question in the title of the Times Talk, mm -hmm. that's where I want to start our conversation. Uh, so let's go there. Do we still need nuclear weapons? It's an excellent question, and my answer to it, I'm afraid, is not as simple as, as the question might make it sound. In short, yes, we do, but I hope that we can say maybe in a few years, no, we don't. I want to begin with maybe a little bit of a story because nuclear weapons predate certainly most of the students at, at Georgia College and have been a big part of my life, having grown up at the end of the 20th century. On June 3rd in 1980, it was about 2.30 in the morning, and there were computers at the National Military Command Center, which is beneath the Pentagon in Foggy Bottom outside of Washington, that started ringing and sending off alarms. The same thing was happening at NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado, and also at Site R, which is the Pentagon's alternative command post if somehow Washington were destroyed. They were all saying the same thing, that the Soviet Union had just launched a nuclear attack on the United States. And just like you might see in the movies, there were big screens on the wall that were showing all of these little lines that were meant to communicate individual missiles that would be raining down on cities across the United States. At that point in the summer of 1980, the Soviets had just recently invaded Afghanistan and the superpower rivalry was really at a, at a bad spot. So given all the attitude and, and maybe the, uh, the worry between the superpowers, it seemed like World War III was beginning in the middle of the night in June 1980. There were Air Force ballistic missile crews, and they did what they were supposed to do. They took their launch keys out of their safes. Bomber pilots started running to their airplanes, doing exactly what they had drilled hundreds of times. And the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, started to issue orders that all civilian airliners needed to land at the nearest airport. Jimmy Carter was president of the United States, and he was asleep upstairs in the White House. And his national security advisor, a man named Zbigniew Brzezinski, was also asleep at his home in Washington. And his phone rang. And it wasn't the phone that was his family line. It was the phone that he hoped would never ring. And on the other end was his military aide, a guy named William Odom. And he was calling to tell him that about 220 missiles were inbound 
from Soviet submarines. They were heading to the United States, and there would be about 20 minutes before, in this case, World War III would begin, whether we wanted it to or not. Brzezinski did what he thought he needed to do. He let his wife sleep, and he started to pick up the phone to call the president and tell him that it was time and that he needed to get out of Washington and that they needed to order a retaliation. And just before he picked up the phone, he had the receiver in his hand, and it rang again. It was his military aide saying, we're so sorry, sir, this has been a mistake. That is something that happened dozens of times over the Cold War. And for our listeners, certainly today, and uh, for our students, they may remember it happened in our lifetimes. It happened about 18 months ago in Hawaii on a sleepy Saturday morning when uh, I know a lot of people are probably still in bed having, uh, you know, slept late on a weekend. There was an emergency text message that went out that said, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And believe it or not, it was the same mistake. It was a training that appeared live. And for people in Hawaii, they were doing what they thought they needed to do. They were trying to hide under the bed, hide in the bathtub, get on the road, uh, protect their children. So in some ways, this feels like maybe an archaic question. Do we still need these old nuclear weapons, the weapons that ended World War II, that defined the Cold War? But the, the reality is, as we speak, there are people who are managing these weapons, who are sitting in underground silos, who are flying heavy bombers, who are on submarines, who within a couple of minutes could launch what would become World War III and what might uh, ultimately end the world as we know it. Well, and I, I do want to say that that was a, a lovely retelling of that in the sense that even knowing the outcome of these stories, it was still sending chills down my back and through my legs uh, because I, I remember uh, what happened in um, in Hawaii, uh, uh, what you were describing, uh, and I also remember these stories about uh, feeling like we were on the verge and it coming down to uh, human intervention to dis, uh, to stop what I—, I I want to counter, I don't think it would be World War III, but it would just be the annihilation of humanity mm -hmm. uh, as we know it. I mean, 200 plus, I mean, how many nuclear weapons will we need to destroy our Earth? Sure. That was a question that was asked by most of our presidents across the Cold War, from Eisenhower all the way to, to the present day, uh, to Obama and to Donald Trump. Um, and in most cases, presidents, as, you know, they come out of an election and, and they, you know, they're moving into the White House, and the first couple of days of transition coming into their new role, they're given what's called an in-brief, typically by a, a senior flag officer, a general, or someone who sits them down and explains how all these weapons work and what role they serve. And from Eisenhower through the present day, our presidents have been astonished to learn um, what these nuclear weapons are and what they do. Eisenhower, who had been most distinguished commander in World War II, became really worried about the role that these nuclear weapons would play in the United States. A phrase he sometimes used was, we will descend into being one great military camp. John F. Kennedy, who succeeded Eisenhower, after receiving this in-brief, turned to an aide and said, and we call ourselves the human race. When Richard Nixon received this brief, he was told in an initial nuclear exchange, and that was the phrase they used, a nuclear exchange, like you're exchanging a dollar bill or a gift or something. In an initial nuclear exchange, Mr. President, probably about 400 million people would die. 
400 million people is more than the population of the United States today. It's a significant percentage of the population of the globe. And Richard Nixon was astonished to learn this. So truth be told, we don't need nearly the number of nuclear weapons that we have today or that we've had at any point in the Cold War. Certainly the most powerful weapons developed by the United States, the Soviet Union, and later the Russian Federation, just a handful of them, maybe a dozen, could ultimately destroy most of the Northern Hemisphere. But as one very distinguished historian and political scientist, uh, Thomas Nichols, who's a professor at the U.S. Navy War College, as Professor Nichols has noted, across the Cold War, we developed more weapons and suddenly we developed more targets. And it reminds me of that old expression, when the only tool you have is a hammer, suddenly every problem looks like a nail. So there's been a great deal of maybe redundancy. At the height of the Cold War, the United States had, although this number remains still classified, probably about 40,000 nuclear warheads, of course, varying sizes and capacities. At the height of the Cold War, Henry Kissinger, who was Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, received a briefing that said, should the United States attack the Soviet Union, they had targeted 500 nuclear warheads on Moscow. There's a small radar installation outside of Moscow um, that uh, they had targeted 67 nuclear warheads. And truly, just one would have wiped out the entire city of Moscow um, and the radar installation. And I should note, all the people, the civilians, the schools, the hospitals, the churches, everything. So there's a, certainly been a, a culture of redundancy and, and maybe excess that has been endemic to nuclear planning and the nuclear enterprise since the late 1940s. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're having another in our series of collaboration with the American Democracy Project to bring their Timestock conversations to our radio audience. Today, I'm talking with Georgia College Director of Leadership Programs, Harold Mock, on the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight we are previewing the upcoming Times Talk, which will happen at noon on Wednesday in the Georgia College Library. Uh, that Times Talk will ask the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? I'm talking with the Director of Leadership Programs at Georgia College, Harold Mock. He will be leading that Times Talk tomorrow. Uh, so in the end of that last segment, we were kind of having a conversation about how many times we could annihilate our specific targets or really uh, how many times uh, we could potentially end humanity. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a horror story, uh, one that uh, I think that we have communicated uh, across uh, at least two and a half generations now. Uh, but it was also a strategy. Uh, could you talk sure. about that strategy and uh, where it's led us to in the present? That's a wonderful question. Many of our listeners may remember from being children or certainly learning it in school about massive retaliation. The idea that, as you say, this is a strategy to have overwhelming ability to retaliate against any adversary. The thought being, as long as the arsenal is big enough, nobody would dare risk war with the United States. Certainly in the 1950s, that did seem realistic. But you and I, maybe from the comfort of your studio today, can say, well, what's really the difference in 30,000 nuclear weapons versus 40,000 nuclear weapons? Is the extra 10,000 really going to dissuade me from taking some sort of aggressive action if that's what I want to do? That logic of massive retaliation is what started the Cold War. And it's what started the arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. The arms race was both qualitative and quantitative. The idea that if I'm going to get one weapon, you're probably going to want at least two so that you feel like you're one-upping me and, and you're a little bit more secure. Political scientists call this problem the security dilemma. When I get one sort of uh, weapon, you have to one-up me. And what we do is get locked in a contest where we can't stop. In seeking to make ourselves more secure, we ultimately make ourselves less secure. Well, and I guess is there, I mean, any fallacy in that logic that we can look at in history? Because, mm-hmm. now I'm, I may be wrong, but there's only been two nuclear weapons deployed in our history. That's right. So there have only ever been two nuclear weapons that have been detonated in anger or that have been used as tools of war. And of course, those were the two weapons that the United States dropped to end World War II in Hiroshima on August 6th, uh, 1945, and in Nagasaki three days later. Since then, this question of nuclear weapons has been something that in a lot of ways is academic. So the word you used, is this a strategy? Yes, it is a strategy. Um, It's not something that has been tested. We're very grateful, of course, that it hasn't. But it has remained uh, an object of fascination for defense officials, war gamers, academics who look at these nuclear weapons and try to find ways of making them useful. The doctrine of massive retaliation started to look increasingly hollow around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis because truly would the United States be willing to sacrifice its population, our way of life, because of some small incursion on the Soviet frontier, because of an incident at sea between two ships, because of something with an uncertain origin where it may have been the Soviets, but it may have been something else. 
And the doctrine that ultimately replaced massive retaliation was codified in the late 1960s. It was called flexible response. The idea that we can always ratchet up tension, but it's very hard to ratchet it back down. So if an aggressor does something that harms us or our allies or our interests, we will do our very best to respond at a minimum level of violence with the expectation that we can always ratchet up the conflict. And that has been you know, sort of the official doctrine that carried us through much of the rest of the Cold War was the idea that we can always escalate conflict. That was both an effective strategy, but it was also a little bit dangerous because we immediately start asking the question, well, when does a conventional conflict, that is soldiers on a battlefield, become something that is nuclear in nature? That's a threshold that once it is crossed, it is effectively impossible to go back. And that was certainly a great fear among the Western allies during the Cold War. We know now that the Cold War is over, it was always really part of the Soviet doctrine to go nuclear, that is to deploy battlefield nuclear weapons or to escalate to nuclear weapons as necessary. And what would be, I guess, the pretext for that, especially in a Cold War scenario where there were not actually conventional wars going on, at least within that bipolar paradigm in which we're talking about these two superpowers face to face? Sure. That's a good question. Um, weapons and uh, their delivery vehicles are divided into two categories. They're divided into strategic and uh, tactical. Strategic weapons are the forces that are configured according to some kind of preconceived objective against the adversary. So strategic weapons are the ones that most of us think of when we, when we think of nuclear weapons. We think of uh, great big missiles buried in silos out uh, you know, across the American West. We think of the heavy bombers that we might see in uh, old movies, Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove. We think of the uh, SLBMs, the sea-launched ballistic missiles that are on submarines deep under the ocean. Those are typically weapons that, uh, for uh, obviously most of their history, have been targeted against the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation. The second category of weapons are called tactical weapons. Those are the ones that are intended for flexible use in a theater of battle. Those are things that we might not hear about a lot when we are reading this in the paper or maybe remembering it from our history classes. Things like freefall bombs and glide bombs, air-to-surface missiles, and so forth. Um, and those are weapons that are, as I said, tactical in nature, meaning a, a commander can make decisions about how to use those in the field of battle. And that is where maybe those of us who spend a lot of time thinking about nuclear weapons in a historical context, that is where uh, it seemed like the tension would get ratcheted up most easily, because it only takes one commander in a field of battle to say, I'm losing too many of my forces, we can't retreat, our supply lines have been cut off, it is time to deploy this weapon. And once a surface-to-surface -surface tactical weapon has been deployed, it's very easy for an adversary to say, they've gone nuclear, it's time for us to do the same. So uh, you use the word logic, and there is some logic in this, but to those of us who aren't tasked with making these decisions, it feels like a terrible kind of logic to have. Well, and I, as you talk about the tactical um, use of weapons of that capacity, 
Is that a regular part of military operations on behalf of the United States or any other government in that there would be uh, commanders on the ground who would have that capability at their disposal and with the ability to make those decisions? Because, um, of course, uh, the counters we commonly think about uh, the football passing um, with the president from place to place and him or her being the ultimate arbiter of uh, that use of force? In the case of the United States, the answer is no. Um, for nearly all of our history, that has been something that, as you say, resides with the president, or at least at the very highest levels of government. We refer to that as command and control. There's a single point of command and control of these forces. In situations where tensions are ratcheting up, or certainly on the battlefield, the command authorities would delegate decision-making authority further down the line of command. So maybe from the decision-makers in Washington, ultimately to field commanders. There was also a great deal of concern during the Cold War about lines of communication, uh, command and control being cut. What is to say that the president or the senior decision-makers will always be in communication with those battlefield commanders? What if somehow a submarine commander has his or her ability to communicate cut off. So that has been certainly a, a great concern about nuclear weapons, because as I said, it's easy to ratchet up tension. It's virtually impossible to ratchet it down. We know for the Soviets during the Cold War, the answer was that often authority was assumed at lower levels uh, during situations of conflict. So it would have been quite easy to imagine scenarios where nuclear weapons would have been fired, uh, tactical nuclear weapons on a battlefield, had the United States and its allies come into conflict with the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. All right. It has come time for us to take another break, and we will take that opportunity. If you're just joining us, we're asking the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? I'm talking with Georgia College Director of Leadership Programs, Harold Mock. He will be leading the Times Talk, which will take place tomorrow at noon in the Georgia College Library. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. As we often do on Tuesdays, we are renewing our collaboration with the American Democracy Project to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. This week, the Times Talk asked the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? I'm talking with Georgia College Director of Leadership Programs, Harold Mock. Uh, now, over the course of these last two segments, uh, very similar to the what we're actually talking about in our conversation, we're kind of ratcheting this tension up. Uh, we're talking about uh, just the massive increase of these super weapons that could destroy our world uh, many times over again. And we're kind of developing the logic with which we went down that path. But um, I, I kind of want to ratchet the tensions down just a little bit and talk about those intervening years, the ones that we grew up in, uh, where we tried to uh, constrain our, our worst ambitions uh, in this arena. How did we get to a point where we kind of put nuclear weapons aside for a little bit? As we started in our conversation ratcheting up tension, I, I told a little story, and, and maybe to ratchet down the tension, I'll, I'll tell us a little story, too, that, um, you know, I explained about Brzezinski getting this phone call in the middle of the night, and uh, I'd like maybe for our listeners just to think about the relief that you would feel when you realize that this is not happening. There are not 225 missiles that are inbound to the United States. Everything's going to be fine. I can go back to bed. And the next day, of course, the White House and the Pentagon started to try to uncover what had actually happened, what had gone wrong, what made us almost retaliate against an enemy that wasn't actually there. And it was a mistake. It was a false alarm. There was a defective computer chip and a communications device at NORAD, and that chip cost 46 cents to replace. And I think about what it must be like to be a decision maker and have to think about the inevitable, have to think about what it would be to declare war and, and to use nuclear weapons. But in the same way we think about that, we should think about what it means to be a decision maker, an elected official, and have the ability to say, enough is enough, and we need to find ways of ratcheting down tensions. Many of our, our listeners may have learned about or, or may know in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis was one of the most dangerous moments of the Cold War. It was a moment when people thought the Cold War was going to become World War III. And then by the end of October 1962, the missiles that we feared would destroy the United States from Cuba, we had found a way to negotiate with the Soviets and to walk back those tensions. Similarly, in, in the early 1980s, Tension seemed about as bad as they could get between East and West. And Ronald Reagan, a, a very serious cold warrior, he was often seen as being militant or a hawk, found ways of trying to engage with his Soviet counterpart. Even though they wouldn't see eye to eye and they both knew that, it was important for them to come together and to build some momentum. It's much harder to walk away from somebody when you've had conversation that has been going well. And that's something that Reagan, even though he was a defense hawk, was instrumental in doing in the last decade of the Cold War. So as we talk about these harrowing episodes, we also need to remember that for many times in our history, we have tried to find ways of managing conflict, of constraining our worst impulses, and finding ways to make the world a more peaceful place to live in, rather than one that is increasingly 
dangerous. So just a, a quick bit of context. The reason I came to this conversation about nuclear weapons and their importance today is because in the news in the past few weeks, our listeners have probably been seeing things about the INF Treaty, an old Cold War agreement. It uh, took effect in, in 1987, negotiated between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it established a, a, a set of agreements about a very specific kind of weapon that the United States and the Soviets had been trying to one-up each other. And it agreed, we will not continue to engage in that contest. And ultimately, from my perspective, that is what helped to end the Cold War. Our listeners will remember, certainly, people taking pickaxes to the Berlin Wall. They will remember that exchange between East and West as the Cold War was winding down. But that could have been just an episode. What made that such an important moment is that senior leaders in both East and West had been engaged in finding ways of stepping back from the brink, of finding ways of constraining the nuclear weapons, the conventional weapons that had defined the arms race for decades and, and certainly for a generation. And of course, I believe you mentioned in it that there was a, a, a large framework. It's not just about this INF uh, agreement that um, we have recently pulled out of, uh, but there, I, I think, was an effort uh, to begin kind of constraining this new nuclear age, um, almost from the beginning of what we would call the Cold War, but the uh, aftermath of World War II, in which like-minded countries came together to uh, try to say that, you know, we will constrain our, you know, arms race with these uh, world-destroying weapons. That's right. I sometimes say to my students when we're discussing this topic or when I'm teaching about it, if humankind is smart enough to develop these weapons, then it is incumbent upon us to be smart enough to make them obsolete. And my hope is that hundreds of years from now, after we're all gone, we will have looked back on this time period as a time in which we created things that could end the world many times over, and we also found ways to make them unnecessary. We found ways to constrain them and ultimately to consign them to history. Ronald Reagan had a dream, a goal, and it was in 1985. He shared it with his counterpart, Mikhail Gorbachev. He said, what if by the year 2000, we both come together and unplug the last two nuclear weapons. He said, we'll be old men, we will probably won't be able to get out of our chairs, but imagine what it would feel like to be the person who disarms the very last nuclear weapon. That's something that we often maybe forget about Ronald Reagan. We see him as, you know, as a Cold War hawk quite justifiably, but I think for a lot of our leaders, certainly in the United States and, and in the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation, when they are placed with the responsibility of having to make decisions about these weapons, the first place I think a rational person's mind goes is, I don't ever want to do that. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the year 2000, because I think it was about the year 2000 when Mikhail Gorbachev was touring the United States, um, talking about the lessons um, of, uh, uh, obviously, uh, what we're talking about now, but um, you know that w recent world history at that time. I think that um, Mikhail Gorbachev is, is really the hero of the, the end of the Cold War. There are a lot of books about why the Cold War ended or how it ended, and the very best is written by a friend of mine. His name is James Graham Wilson. He's a 
historian at the State Department, and he wrote a book called The Triumph of Improvisation. And in that book, he shows how through mutual willingness to engage in discussion, to engage in dialogue, even with an adversary, there were forward-thinking leaders in the United States and a few forward-thinking leaders in the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev being the most important, who created structures wherein the Cold War could end, as Dr. Wilson says, with a whimper and not with a bang, to find ways in which the Cold War could end peacefully. For most of the history of the Cold War, we thought that it was going to end with World War III. And truly, the Cold War ended in a way that surprised everybody, with peace and with prosperity, with minimal bloodshed. And what is the irony of that is that it largely ended without a grand design. It ended by, as this historian James Wilson says, by improvisation, by people of great intelligence and goodwill being willing to react to things in real time and to find ways of making the world a more peaceful and prosperous place. Well, that is a, a, what I consider a triumphant end for uh, this segment of our conversation. Uh, we're going to take another opportunity for a short break. Of course, you are listening to another of our Times Talk Conversations on Georgia College Connections. Today, I'm talking with the Director of Leadership Programs at Georgia College, uh, Harold Mock. He will be leading this week's Times Talk, and in that Times Talk, he will be asking the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? Stay tuned, and we'll continue that conversation here on Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Of course, our entire program is an invitation to come out and join the conversation at noon on Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. Uh, But I'll be explicit in it and say, if you're enjoying our conversation tonight, uh, please consider coming out tomorrow at noon and joining in the discussion uh, with our facilitator, Georgia College Director of Leadership Programs, Harold Mock, who's asking and debating on the question, do we still need nuclear? weapons. Now, in that last segment, we tried to talk about walking away from uh, the uh, growing pressure uh, to build, develop, and potentially deploy nuclear weapons. Um, We talked about that effort uh, to try to uh, find a peaceful solution uh, to uh, those ends. Um, And I want to ask this question, how successful were we uh, during the 1980s and the end of the Cold War in uh, trying to find a peaceful resolution uh, to the nuclear question? That's an excellent way to, to think about it. A series of frameworks, a series of, of agreements that helped the Cold War to end peacefully and ultimately to keep the peace across the 1990s and the 2000s. Um, thinking back to when did this begin or when did we actively find ways to manage these nuclear weapons? And, and the first really important moment in that was in 1962, 1963, at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, both John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev and their respective governments realized we can never do this again. And uh, within a year, the United States and the Soviet Union had concluded a treaty that seemed like a simple thing, but they would start restricting the ways in which they tested nuclear weapons, and they would limit the ways in which they tested nuclear weapons. It's called the Limited Test Ban Treaty. It's a tiny, tiny step but it it sent uh, a message to the people of the world that we are engaged in trying to find peaceful ways to regulate this. A similar efforts continued, of course, across the late uh, 1960s into the 1970s. Our listeners may remember learning about or living through an era called detente, a way of trying to step back from conflict You know, people who sat at their desks in the State Department or in the Pentagon were actually engaged in a day-to-day basis of saying, do we really need to target all these Soviet cities? Do we really need to have 500 weapons as opposed to 10 targeted at this adversary? And again, that may seem like a tiny step because in the end, we're still targeting somebody. But it mattered because it was a way of finding ways and putting them into structure to step back from conflict. From my perspective, the golden age of this was the 1980s. It began really as soon as Ronald Reagan came into office in the early 1980s. He was engaged in thinking about and asking questions of people he recognized maybe knew more about the nuances of nuclear weapons than he did. How do we find a way to build structures wherein these things don't have to be used. Maybe we don't get rid of them, but maybe we find ways to make them obsolete. Um, So he had discussions internally. Similarly, Mikhail Gorbachev, when he came to power in the Soviet Union in 1985, took a different view than any Soviet leader who had come before him. We need to find ways of making our country as prosperous and as happy a place as it can be and not to building up the world's most formidable military. We already have a formidable military, but what we don't have are happy, prosperous people. So 
I see the 1980s as an era in which there were people of great intellect and good intention trying to, again, build layers, layer after layer of of structure, wherein these weapons, yes, they will still be with us, but we are making them less and less relevant to our day-to-day life, to the way that we interact with the world, the way that we do business. One of the things I found interesting about this network of agreements was not uh, explicitly what they did. I mean, we kind of think of them, especially with the INF, of limiting specific kinds of weapons and the capabilities of those weapons. Uh, But I believe another part of these uh, agreements was the transparency that they offered in the way that that transparency was uh, meant to assuage fears of the other in that um, they would have monitoring of each other's nuclear arsenal and even... uh, um, for um, one of the agreements, I can't remember which off the top of my head, but you would share the results of some of the testing that you were doing so that you would know the capabilities of your adversary, but also uh, kind of have insight into the way that they are developing. And um, I'm using this uh, in the wrong way, I think, but um, uh, strategically deploying those weapons uh, across your sphere of influence um, so that you would not be afraid of that you had no idea what they were doing over there and therefore you must build your own capabilities according to your worst fears. That's a wonderful phrase, building capabilities according to your worst fears. And that's what this network of agreements and treaties between adversaries ultimately helped to do, was to build rapport. The phrase that uh, negotiators used was confidence-building measures. We need to find ways of making small victories. We need to find ways of, of having some small achievements because small achievements lead to bigger achievements. None of us are going to sit down at a conference table and come out with a framework to end the Cold War in one fell swoop. But we might come to a table and find a way to build some mutual respect, to limit one very small aspect of something, even something as simple as cultural exchanges. Let's have some of your people come to my country and some of my people go to your country so that in the end they will learn to appreciate something about another place in the world. And that may sound simple, but when the weight of the world is bearing down on your negotiations, the small victories, sometimes you take what you can get. And ultimately, they did generate something that I believe the negotiators could be very proud of. The reason I want to have this conversation today with our students and with our guests at Times Talk at Georgia College is to say that This set of frameworks that ultimately helped the Cold War to end peacefully is slowly being stripped away. I ask the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? I'm afraid the answer is yes, because as long as an adversary has the capacity to harm my country and the place that I love and so forth, I believe my country needs similar capacity. But that's part of the problematic thinking. It's, it, it is the logic that defines conflict, not peace. My fear is that the frameworks that we have built is slowly being stripped away because we have taken them for granted. So in political discourse today, right now, people are talking about the INF Treaty as if it's something that's old, as if it's something that is outdated. There may be very specific dimensions of it that are outdated in the same way that anything starts to show its age over time. 
But the victory that is born from these frameworks is not just what is written on paper. It is that we cared enough to create structures to regulate conflict, and we hope to institutionalize peace. And, um, of course, you just brought us back um, to almost the beginning of our conversation uh, with uh, the ending of that INF agreement. Um, Why, at least within our communications, what were the reasons that we walked away from that agreement? In simple terms, the United States began to walk away from the INF Treaty because the Russians violated it. It is an objective fact that the Russians violated the INF Treaty and the terms that had been agreed to in that 1987 agreement. That has been something that has been a concern before Donald Trump came into office. It was a concern certainly during the Obama administration that State Department officials were concerned about Russian intentions. Um, in, in their intentions to develop um, these intermediate-range uh, missiles, uh, whether they be nuclear or not, I don't believe that they had. To, did they have to be nuclear in that one, or did that just cover actual um, the missiles' means of delivering whatever payload? That's absolutely right. So, so you're right to distinguish between those two things: the missile versus the payload. Um, the the treaty, although of course it was very concerned about payload, was actually focusing on delivery vehicles. Uh, it was focusing on the missiles themselves, missiles that had a certain range. The missile that the Russians have been developing for the past few years, maybe the past eight to 10 years, is the uh, 9M727 cruise missile, which is what the State Department has cited as violating the INF Treaty. So I recognize that there are some good reasons to question Russian intentions within the framework of the INF Treaty. But the next question doesn't need to be, how can we take an eye for an eye? The next question needs to be, what actually does this mean for us? And how do we guarantee safety and security of our own people and our own allies and our own interests? What is the next step that we can take in negotiation or in signaling our intention to the Russians that we want to keep frameworks in place wherein we can continue to regulate conflict? But are we sending that message to the Russians? Uh, You mentioned eye for an eye. And I believe that's because uh, we have announced our plans to develop our own intermediate range missiles um, uh, that we have there. Uh, But we are also sending um, other uh, messages in that um, uh, the INF was not the only agreement that we have to kind of control nuclear weapons. Uh, There is another one, the New Start uh, Treaty, uh, I guess most recently renewed um, in 2010 that will expire in 2021. And what are we signaling about our intention on that remaining agreement? That is certainly at the heart of the issue. If we are signaling our willingness to step back from the INF Treaty, my fear is that we are also signaling our willingness to step back from other agreements. I do believe in this context that the Russians are the guilty party. It is the Russian development of this weapon that does violate the terms of the INF agreement that started this ball rolling down the hill. But there is an opportunity for us, for the United States, to get ahead of this and and to try to manage the conflict. Certainly, a, a great deal of Russian aggression in the recent decade, from my perspective, has largely been for domestic consumption. Vladimir Putin needs to consolidate power and needs to keep power in the Russian Federation. So he does that in many ways 
appearing as a strong man and thumbing his nose at the United States is a good way to do that. Expressing disdain for Western institutions and for the European Union is an effective way to shore up support domestically, particularly in a federation that is rather fractious. So my fear is that we are not thinking through ultimately the long-term motivations of the Russian government in developing these weapons and testing perhaps the limits of the INF treaty. And it is incumbent upon us to, as you said, figure out how does this one agreement fit within the constellation of agreements that have helped to manage the peace in recent decades. Well, it's uh, come time again for another short break, and so we're going to take that opportunity. Uh, If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Harold Mock. He is the Director of Leadership Programs at Georgia College, and he will be facilitating the next Times Talk, which will take place at noon on Wednesday. And that will look at the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Of course, we are uh, previewing for you the next Times Talk, which will take place tomorrow at noon in the Georgia College Library. Uh, I'll mention one more time, it is a free and open to the public conversation. So if if you followed our conversation to this point, have questions or comments of your own, please consider coming out and tendering them in person at that Times Talk in the Georgia College Library. Um, Again, we're talking tomorrow about do we still need nuclear weapons? Our Times Talk will be led by my guest, Georgia College Director of Leadership Programs, Harold Mock. Now, in that last segment, we kind of got us to our starting point, uh, which was this unraveling of uh, uh, some, but not all, yet, uh, of this network of agreements over the containment of our nuclear arsenals, uh, most specifically between the U.S. and Russia. Um, 
I sensed uh, a sense of fear that you might have about uh, the unknown into which we're entering. Uh, might you just expand upon um, what I, I, I sensed there in that last segment? Sometimes when things work so well for so long, we forget how hard it was to create them in the first place. And we sometimes even take them for granted. My view is that it is the long-constructed network of agreements and set of structures to help regulate nuclear weapons, to, uh, to continue to recognize that nuclear weapons are not things that we want to proliferate. My fear is that it is that foundation with many layers that has uh, been so stable for so long that we've forgotten how hard it was to build it. And we've forgotten that we need to continue to keep that in place, if not reinforce it and make it stronger. So the real fear here uh, on my part, certainly, is that as we are willing to do things like step away from the INF Treaty of All Agreements, to my view, the, the real agreement that helped to end the Cold War, what else are we willing to step away from? In what does our world become and I, and I say world specifically in that one, um, because, of course, as we've talked about these kinds of agreements between the U.S. and Russia, uh, the landscape has grown to have many more nuclear powers. But world, what does the world become when we don't see those two uh, power players uh, working to resolve these issues in a peaceful means? Certainly, the United States and the Russian Federation control most of the world's nuclear stockpile. And whether they like it or not, they set an example for, for the other nuclear powers, for other countries that, that have nuclear weapons. It is important that, of course, that they continue to demonstrate that we have these weapons, but we have no intention of using them. We don't want to make them operational. We don't want to make them things that we plan to use. It is important that we continue to demonstrate that, that we show that we do not want these forces to proliferate. And that having nuclear weapons is a burden. It is not a privilege. And so um, we've uh, continued ourselves in a multi-generational conversation uh, today about nuclear weapons. And I believe that uh, this is not one that would just be uh, born by us, but uh, future generations, future leaders um, to come. Unfortunately, we must curtail our part of that conversation right now. And so I'll go to our perennial last Times Talk question, which is, um, what do you hope our audience at the Times Talk, and even tonight, uh, takes away from this conversation? I want our audience to, in the simplest terms, be more comfortable asking questions about nuclear weapons. I think truly that that is the way that we become a part of a conversation and can help to shape public discourse around any topic is to take a gamble and be willing to ask questions about things that maybe we don't understand. As I said before, I know that this is a confusing issue for a lot of us, and it can sometimes be maybe a little uncomfortable to say, I don't understand what that acronym means, or I don't know what that weapon is. Can you help to explain it? So I love that we do that at Georgia College, and we do that at Times Talk, um, where any passing interest in a topic is something that we can, we can explore a little bit further with our group at Times Talk. So that's something, of course, that I hope our audience takes away. I also hope that our audience considers the question I raised earlier about the importance of this constellation of agreements that has helped to shape the peace that defines the world we live in. The last thing that I hope our Times Talk audience considers and can discuss is 
what are we losing by pouring our energy and our money into nuclear forces that in many cases are redundant? We're asking this question long after the Cold War has ended, but as the Cold War was really just beginning, Dwight Eisenhower gave a speech in which he said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. And he went on in that speech to talk about all the money that we're pouring into these weapons that may be redundant is stopping us from building better schools, building better hospitals. He even, in that speech, went on to equate how many bushels of wheat could be harvested if we didn't make one heavy bomber. And that is something that is worth us asking. Certainly, the United States is a country of great wealth and prosperity. But what are we losing by putting our resources into places that may be redundant? He concluded that speech saying, under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. And it is my hope that in having a a proactive discussion with our Times Talk audience and certainly our Georgia College students who are going to be stepping into, into the roles of public leadership in the decade or two to come, that we do not have a cloud of war hanging over us. And in fact, we can have great confidence in the structures that we have built to keep these conflicts at bay. All right. Well, a very aspirational place to leave this conversation tonight. Um, Looking forward to uh, another conversation tomorrow. Harold Mock, I want to thank you for bringing this question and uh, many of your thoughts about it to the Times Talk. Thank you, Daniel. I'm glad to be with you. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we were previewing tomorrow's Times Talk conversation, which asks the question, do we still need nuclear weapons? I was joined today by Georgia College Director of Leadership Programs, Harold Mott. He will be leading tomorrow's Times Talk again at noon in the Georgia College Library. On behalf of WRGC, I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.